Well, this week we're going to continue uh, Jesus' teaching from the Sermon on the Mount. If you haven't been with us in previous weeks, uh, this is essentially teachings that, that we find in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. So we always encourage you to read that in its entirety, not just take the passages alone that we're teaching on each week. For time's sake, we can't cover it all, so we're going to hit some of the high points. But I also want to encourage you to go back and read the entirety of those chapters and put it all into a good framework. The passage we're using tonight comes from Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 37. So that's where we're going to be. And it, it really, this part is where Jesus really turns the focus on the heart. The condition of that inner part of us where... The true nature of what we think and who we are and what we value in life really resides. Uh, I think that's not a hard stretch for us to understand because we talk about people all the time saying that person has a good heart or what's in the heart of that uh, of the person. And so Jesus is getting right to the central part of who we are and then he's tying it directly to himself. Now he's going to start this passage in a maybe a little untraditional way for us or unconventional way for us in terms of addressing the heart. But for his audience at the time of the Sermon on the Mount, it would have cut right to the heart of who they were as individuals, how they associated themselves with God and the nation of Israel as a whole. So if you're ready, we're going to jump in there. Now, what he's about to refer to here is what they refer to as the law. Now, this is not governmental law. This is the religious law that the Jews had organized themselves around, most commonly referred to as the first five books of the Old Testament. Now, these are the five books that um, tradition has it, that Moses wrote them all. God gave this word to Moses, and Moses shared it with the people. And so that's generally speaking what the, the law is referring to, although it could at times also loosely refer to also the prophets, and, and the Psalms themselves, but primarily what's referred to as the Torah or the first five books of the Bible. Now, the Torah was the substance of divine revelation to Israel and also to the Jewish people as a whole. It was God's revealed teaching or guidance for humankind, the way they looked at it. Now, it also meant it was a direct revelation from God through Moses to the people, and in Jewish eyes, one could not separate Israel and the Torah. So you could not really separate Israel and the Jewish people from the law. And this is where Jesus goes at the beginning of this passage. Now, it's likely we don't know for sure, but we know from other uh, scriptures in the New Testament in particular that, that Jesus was challenged on whether he was contradicting or against Moses or not in this particular case as it relates to the law. And it was most likely he was addressing this given his audience because this is what he says. He says, do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. So he's, he's addressing something very specific. But as you're going to find out in just a moment, it relates even today to me and you. So he begins this discussion on the law. But what he's stressing is he did not oppose what God gave to Israel and what we call the Old Testament. He's saying he did not come to destroy the word of God but he is going to challenge them in a certain way. He says, but to free it, he's not his words, by the way, but to free it from the way the Pharisees and the scribes, who were the religious teachers of the time, had wrongly interpreted it. Now, in verse 18, he's going to, he's going to hammer home another authoritative point that we started with in week one from the Beatitudes, where he says, truly I say to you, or assuredly in some translations it says, 
What is essentially happening there again is he's saying, not only is, am I about to tell you something very important, I'm speaking to you as one who has authority. And for one to have authority of the law, in this case, he's making a God claim once again. He said, I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. So Jesus wanted to make it clear he has his own authority apart from Moses, but not in contradiction to it. At the same time, Jesus is adding nothing to the law except one thing that no man had ever added to the law, and that was perfect obedience to the law. And in that sense, Jesus has come to fulfill the law. Everything that the Jews in Israel had been taught about how to relate to God and who God was and how to relate to one another as a result, Jesus is saying all of that is encompassed in me. It's embodied in me. He also fulfilled the doctrinal teachings of the law in that he bring a full revelation or understanding of these things that they had wrestled with for many centuries. He's even fulfilling the predictive prophecy of the law in that He is the promised one. He is the promised Savior of Israel and unbeknownst to them, the Savior of the entire world that the prophets had been pointing to all along. He is the one that is going to redeem each of us to Himself. He fulfilled the moral and legal demands of the law in that He obeyed them, but He also reinterpreted them in their truth so that they could understand them and apply them better. And finally... He fulfilled the penalty of the law. The Bible says the wages of sin is death from a spiritual perspective. And He paid the price on the cross for each of us in terms of what we owed, spiritually speaking, back to God for our denial of Him, for our rejection of Him, for the sin in which we have found ourselves living in. And so He took that on Himself and fulfilled that aspect of the law. This is echoed in Romans chapter 10, verse 4 by Paul when he says, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And so Christ is fulfilling the law and in turn offering righteousness of His own to every person who would believe. Now I want to stretch this a little bit further from Acts 17 where Paul's in Athens addressing people and he actually quotes one of their poets, but he's pointing to Jesus when he says, in Him we live and move and have our being. And I want you to grasp hold of that concept as we go through these next few moments together in that Jesus is saying, I am the fulfillment of the law, but everything that you you were designed to be, the purpose that you have in being here, the the nature of your existence as a unique soul in the universe, all of it has its being and movement and foundation in Jesus. And so it's a very bold claim. Now, from here... He doesn't just talk about that in these big overarching terms like we've just addressed. He starts to deal with some very practical ways that he's trying to once again set things right in terms of how we understand religious teachings, the scriptures, and how we relate relate to God. And so in verses 21 and 22, he says this, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But... I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without cause shall be in danger of the judgment. Now he says you have heard it said because most people relied on the scribes and the Pharisees, the teachers of religious doctrine, to tell them what was in the Torah, to tell them what was in the Scriptures. Unfortunately, today we've seen that, that, um, that paradigm in America increasingly so as well. 
Most Americans haven't read the Bible through, haven't studied the scriptures uh, to gain understanding from them and have, in some cases, rightfully so. We need teachers, right? But not taking the initiative to understand. And so everything that was passed down to the people at this time was verbal. It was taught to them by someone else. And so they said, that's why you have heard it said that you shall not murder. Now, here's the thing. Rightfully so, the religious teachers of the time were teaching you shouldn't murder, right? But what they, they left kind of in the gray areas was all these other issues that are kind of related to what might lead someone to murder or do harm to someone, for example. And so he's kind of resetting that, but setting it on a higher plane, because this is what he says. But I say to you, whoever's angry with his brother without cause. Now, this type of anger is not just like where you and I might just react to something suddenly and be angry for a momentary or a time or a period, like a day or something like that. But we can go back and just talk to somebody and figure it out. This is more, I think, the idea of holding on to, to anger, kind of almost like I have a right to be angry and, I, and I'm not letting it go. And letting that kind of germinate inside, right? And, and, to, and if you're not careful, what he's saying here, I think, is if you're not careful to guard your own heart against that germination, that maturing of anger within, within yourself, What's going to begin to flow out of that are the things that start to border on action. Going to start to border on, hey, I want retribution. I want revenge. I desire malintent, bad intent for the people or the situation that I'm angry towards. And what he's saying there, I think, is you better guard yourself because the person that commits murder started in that exact same place before they actually acted upon it. And so what he does is he sets the bar or the standard, not just on the action, but on the condition, the position of our hearts. And so that standard from where they were teaching it here goes up to here. Now, what I want to say to you before we go to this next section is that's not a new standard. I think it was Jesus saying this was the original standard of being and thinking and interacting with one another that I intended for you as being made in my image all along. And so, yes, he's setting a higher standard, but I think he's resetting us back to the original standard being, again, fulfilled and shown to us in himself. Then he moves from there and he goes to lust, something I think anger and lust that we can all relate to. He says, if you, you have heard it said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now this again has that concept when you think of anger a moment ago, now you think of lust. That idea of, not, not that I, hey, I saw a guy with his shirt off, right? Or I saw a woman in revealing clothing and I had that momentary temptation or whatever that you want to call that. It's more the idea of I, I, I held on to that. Right, I, I began to ruminate or think upon it or, hold, or, or capture it from myself. And when you do that with lustful thoughts, those things begin to evolve into emotional attachments. They begin to, to, to necessitate and actually crave action in some other form. And so just like anger can lead to a very negative and judgmental action or action that require, an action that requires judgment, 
Lust can be in the same way. And he says, guard your heart because if you don't, you're just one step away from acting upon these things that you now cherish in your heart. So there's kind of like this, hey, I, I want this and I'm holding on to this and, and I'm going to apply it to someone, a woman in this case as we read the scripture, that I'm not supposed to have and I'm not supposed to be directing this towards. And so he's saying, once again, I think, that it's possible to, to commit in your heart adultery or murder by the nature of what you do with it when you encounter these things, lust and anger in this particular case. Now, in verses 29 and 30, though, he starts to broaden this out. And I think this is where you might find a little bit more application in your life today versus him just speaking to the disciples that he's addressing on the Sermon, sermon on the Mount. Now, this next part's important to note. It's not, it's not to be taken literally, this next two verses. There are a lot, there's a lot in the Bible that's poetry, that's uh, parables or storytelling uh, or metaphor. Not all of the Bible's literal and not all of the Bible are, th- are those categories either. But these particular two verses are not meant to be taken literally, and we'll, we'll understand why in just a second. Here he says, If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. Now, obviously, this is a figure of speech. He's not telling you to do bodily harm to yourself, especially when he's just talked about the condition of the heart being the primary and the first and the most important thing. So he's using a figure of speech. In other words, spend your time looking at things that don't cause or tempt you towards sin. Let's look at some practical ways that might, that might play out in our lives. Let's just take entertainment, that category, right? Certainly there's really good things to be watching from an entertainment perspective. But there's other things within that realm, whether it be movies or TV shows or music we listen to. You can pick the category, it doesn't really matter. There's things in there that we need to discipline our eyes and not, not take in and consume in for ourselves. Places we visit whether that's hanging out at a bar late on a Friday night or Saturday night, um, people you hang out with, what you put into your body, all these things are disciplines that we need to apply in our lives. Otherwise, if we're just constantly consuming them, they will begin to develop from our heart perspective things that are not beneficial to us. So here it is. It's better to avoid, cut out, redirect, or create healthier habits and relationships than to continually expose yourself to detrimental behaviors and influences. Jesus simply stressed the point that one must be willing to sacrifice to be obedient. But at the same time, by doing that, you're doing things that are best practices for you. You're doing things that are most in line with your character and your design and your purpose, having been made in the image of Christ. If part of our life is given over to sin, we must be convinced that it's more profitable for us for that part of our life to die rather than to condemn the whole of our lives. So in that sense, if your eye sins, you're taking it out. If your hand sins, you get the picture. Now he goes from there to, a, to an area that most of you might not relate to, but we're not going deal to it, deal with it in depth in any case. But I think once I explain it to you, you're going to find some resonance here. He goes to talk about divorce in this next section. 
He says, furthermore, it has been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a woman, marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. Now, this isn't a blanket teaching on all forms of marriage and divorce. Okay? But you have to understand the context in which he's speaking to this. Again, this has to do with an interpretation of the Scriptures and the way that they were understood and the truths within them. At the time, from Deuteronomy, again, one of the first five books of the Bible, Moses in chapter 24 has given the people permission, given the men, I should say, permission, to divorce their wives, okay? Give them a certificate of divorce. But the problem is, that's been interpreted very loosely. And, and also the fact that the woman didn't have the right to divorce the man, just it was one-sided. Okay, even one rabbinical school, one of the teachers' uh, school uh, schools of thought and religious thought at the time, said you could you could divorce your wife even if she burnt your dinner. So it's, I mean, it was being interpreted. You could divorce somebody for just about anything. Now the question might be: Was it rare? Was it common? That's difficult to know. But the fact that that there was just this this looseness of it, this casualness towards towards divorce. And that it was also unfair to one side, one party within the marriage. Jesus addresses, begins to address this. So in, in a sense, he's restricting it greatly. He's saying, hey, this is the only reason that you can divorce your wife, husbands. Okay? Because at that time, they only had the ability to do so. He's affording protections to, to the women in that sense. And at the same time, he's reaffirming the, per, the permanency of marriage, right? It's not just something you try and throw away if it doesn't fit you. you t- it's something sacred. It's something holy. It's something that should be not only considered that way when you enter it, but it should be considered that way every day that you are married. And so the emphasis of Jesus on the permanency of marriage and the wrong or unjustified divorce went against the thinking, quite honestly, of a lot of the cultures at the time. It went the Greeks and the Romans in particular who controlled the region. You know, marriage was not put on that same plane. In a lot of ways, Jesus is saying, hold on a second, and you see this in the rest of Scripture. Again, I won't get into a marriage talk now. We see that Jesus is putting the wife and the husband on equal footing. And Paul really pl- uh, addresses that in other areas of the New Testament. And so Jesus is saying to cultures, saying to, in this case, the interpretation of the Scriptures, that I'm not allowing you any longer to, vul- to, to cultivate a vulnerable and oppressed stance towards women, in this case, wives. You have to get back to the standard which, for which it's intended to be. So here's where I want to wrap up. There's this sense throughout this passage that Jesus is setting things right. He's putting them back to uh, uh, not just a solid understanding, but the, the, the understanding that God intended for everyone to begin with. He's calling us not to just a higher standard, but His standard, the original standard, what was primary, what was first. And here's the other thing. What must be maintained, though, in order to live according to God's design and purpose and word for your life is examining and guarding your heart. That's at the core of this entire passage. Um, there's a, a, a gentleman that I quote from a historical perspective from time to time, Baklav Havel, who was a Czechoslovakian dissident. And when the communists 
when communism fell in Czechoslovakia, he rose to prominence and power, and everybody wanted him to take revenge and retribution against all those who had oppressed the people and harmed the people. And he said this, and I think it's really powerful and it fits with what we're talking about here. He said, good and evil does not run through us and them as if we're immune to it, but these other people, they're, they're just, they, they can't help themselves, they're delved into it. He says, no, good and evil doesn't run through us and them, it runs through each person. And I think that, that sentiment is here in what Jesus is teaching us, is that if we're not careful, if we don't guard our own hearts, we're just as capable of these heinous things that we claim and judge other people for, unless we guard our hearts and, and make sure we're following the example that Christ has set for us. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23 puts it very succinctly. So if you don't take anything else away from this, take this. Proverbs 4, 23, above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. I'm going to read it one more time. Proverbs 4, 23, above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. It's where what you value resides. It's where your identity sits. It, it is, is the core of who you are. It's the core of how you relate to God. It's the core place where you understand the Scriptures and apply it to your life. And therefore, it must be guarded at all times. I'm going to essentially pray this next part over you. But before I do that, I just want to challenge you this week. It's something that reflection and, and self-examination, it's something that we need to do, not just this week, not just today, or even next month. It's something we need to do on an ongoing basis. Because we'll have to make discipline what we watch, discipline what we discipline, what, discipline what we do, where we go, and how we interpret it even when we're doing well with it, because the culture doesn't always accept what you, the way in which we're trying to live. And that's okay, but it requires that we're constantly, day in and day out, examining our motives and our intentions and what we hold on to. Now this is from... The message, which if you're not familiar with the message, it's not a literal translation of the Bible. It's a paraphrase of the Bible. But sometimes it's helpful to get a very common worded understanding of things. And this comes from Psalm 119.11. And this is my prayer over you this week, or question to you even this week. The message says this, How can a young person live a clean life? By carefully reading the map of your word. I'm single-minded in pursuit of you. Don't let me miss the road signs you've posted. I've banked your promises in the vault of my heart, so I won't send myself bankrupt. Be blessed, God. Train me in your ways of wise living. I'll transfer to my lips all the counsel that comes from your mouth. I delight far more in what you tell me about living than in gathering a pile of riches. I ponder every morsel of wisdom from you, I attentively watch how you've done it. I relish everything you've told me of life. I won't forget a word of it. Guard your heart. Examine your heart. And if you find things there that, that are not worthy of, of who God created you to be and what God calls you to be, then start working on it. Find an accountability partner that will help you walk that out as well. Someone you trust. Someone that you have relationship with. And uh, so that you don't have to try to navigate it all by yourself. We live in a time where we're really quick as people to, to say, those are the bad people, I'm the good person. 
And uh, there's a fine line in there that if we, if we let ourselves just believe that without ever self, doing self-examination, then our heart's in danger of moving into a bad position that's just a step away from an action that goes with it. So Jesus' challenge to us in this passage, I think, is, hey, set your heart on me, with me, constantly examining it, compare it to what I want and the example that I give you. See what Jesus did and follow that. Hey, love you guys. Can't wait to see you all again. Hope you have a tremendous week. God bless you and peace be on you.